Chapter Twenty Eight of Martin Eden by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Eight. But success had lost Martin's address, and her messengers no longer came to his door. For twenty-five days, working Sundays and holidays, he toiled on the shame of the sun, a long essay of some thirty thousand words. It was a deliberate attack on the mysticism of the Matterlink school an attack from the citadel of positive science upon the wonder-dreamers, but an attack, nevertheless, that retained much of the beauty and wonder of the sort compatible with ascertained fact. It was a little later that he followed up the attack with two short essays, The Wonder-Dreamers and The Yardstick of the Ego, and on essays, long and short, he began to pay the traveling expenses from magazine to magazine. During the twenty-five days spent on the shame of the sun, he sold hackwork to the extent of six dollars and fifty cents. A joke had brought in fifty cents, and a second one, sold to a high-grade comic weekly, had fetched a dollar. Then two humorous poems had earned two dollars and three dollars respectively. As a result, having exhausted his credit with the tradesman, though he had increased his credit with the grocer to five dollars, his wheel and suit of clothes went back to the pawnbroker. The typewriter people were again clamoring for money, insistently pointing out that according to the agreement rent was to be paid strictly in advance. Encouraged by his several small sales, Martin went back to hack work. Perhaps there was a living in it, after all. Stored away under his table were the twenty storyettes that had been rejected by the newspaper short story syndicate. He read them over in order to find out how not to write newspaper storyettes, and, doing so, reasoned out the perfect formula. He found that the newspaper storyette should never be tragic, should never end unhappily, and should never contain beauty of language, subtlety of thought, nor real delicacy of sentiment. Sentiment it must contain, plenty of it, pure and noble, of the sort that in his own early youth had brought his applause from nigger heaven. The for God, my country and the Tsar, and I may be poor but I am honest, brand of sentiment. Having learned such precautions, Martin consulted the Duchess for tone, and proceeded to mix according to formula. The formula consists of three parts. One, a pair of lovers are jarred apart. Two, by some deed or event they are reunited. Three, marriage bells. The third part was an unvarying quantity, but the first and second parts could be varied an infinite number of times. Thus, the pair of lovers could be jarred apart by misunderstood motives, by accident of fate, by jealous rivals, by irate parents, by crafty guardians, by scheming relatives, and so forth, and so forth. They could be reunited by a brave deed of the man-lover, or by a similar deed of the woman-lover by change of heart in one lover or the other, by forced confession of crafty guardian, scheming relative, or jealous rival, by voluntary confession of same, by discovery of some unguessed secret, by lover storming girl's heart, by lover making long and noble self-sacrifice, and so on, endlessly. It was very fetching to make the girl propose in the course of being reunited, and Martin discovered, bit by bit, other decidedly piquant and fetching ruses. But marriage bells at the end was the one thing he could take no liberties with. 
though the heavens rolled up as a scroll and the stars fell, wedding bells must go on ringing just the same. In quantity, the formula prescribed twelve hundred words minimum dose, fifteen hundred words maximum dose. Before he got very far along in the art of the storyette, Martin worked out half a dozen stock forms, which he always consulted when constructing storyettes. These forms were like the cunning tables used by mathematicians, which may be entered from top, bottom, right, and left, which entrances consist of scores of lines and dozens of columns, and from which may be drawn, without reasoning or thinking, thousands of different conclusions, all unchallengeably precise and true. Thus, in the course of half an hour with his forms, Martin could frame up a dozen or so storyettes, which he put aside and filled in at his convenience. He found that he could fill one in, after a day of serious work, in the hour before going to bed. As he later confessed to Ruth, he could almost do it in his sleep. The real work was in constructing the frames, and that was merely mechanical. He had no doubt whatever of the efficacy of his formula, and for once he knew the editorial mind when he said positively to himself, that the first two he sent off would bring checks, and checks they brought, for four dollars each, at the end of twelve days. In the meantime he was making fresh and alarming discoveries concerning the magazines. Though the Transcontinental had published The Ring of Bells, no check was forthcoming. Martin needed it, and he wrote for it. An evasive answer and a request for more of his work was all he received. He had gone hungry two days waiting for the reply, and it was then that he put his wheel back in pawn. He wrote regularly, twice a week, to the Transcontinental for his five dollars, though it was only semi-occasionally that he elicited a reply. He did not know that the Transcontinental had been staggering along precariously for years, and it was a fourth-rater, or a tenth-rater, without standing with a crazy circulation that partly rested on petty bullying and partly on patriotic appealing, and with advertisements that were scarcely more than charitable donations. Nor did he know that the Transcontinental was the sole livelihood of the editor and the business manager, and that they would wring their livelihood out of it only by moving to escape paying rent and by never paying any bill they could evade. Nor could he have guessed that the particular five dollars that belonged to him had been appropriated by the business manager for the painting of his house in Almeida, which painting he performed himself on weekday afternoons, because he could not afford to pay union wages, and because the first scab he had employed had had a ladder jerked out from under him, and been sent to the hospital with a broken collarbone. The ten dollars for which Martin had sold treasure hunters to the Chicago newspaper did not come to hand. The article had been published, as he had ascertained at the file in the central reading room, but no word could he get from the editor. His letters were ignored. To satisfy himself that they had been received, he registered several of them. It was nothing less than robbery, he concluded, a cold-blooded steal. While he starved, he was pilfered of his merchandise, of his goods, the sale of which was the sole way of getting bread to eat. Youth and Age was a weekly, and it had published two-thirds of his twenty-one-thousand-word serial when it went out of business. 
with it went all hopes of getting his sixteen dollars. To cap the situation, the pot, which he looked upon as one of the best things he had written, was lost to him. In despair, casting about frantically among the magazines, he had sent it to the Billow, a society weekly in San Francisco. His chief reason for submitting it to that publication was that, having only to travel across the bay from Oakland, a quick decision could be reached. He was overjoyed to see, in the latest number on the newsstand, his story printed in full, illustrated, and in the place of honor. He went home with leaping pulse, wondering how much they would pay him for one of the best things he had done. Also, the celerity with which it had been accepted and published was a pleasant thought to him. That the editor had not informed him of the acceptance made the surprise more complete. After waiting a week, two weeks, and half a week longer, desperation conquered diffidence, and he wrote to the editor of the billow, suggesting that possibly, through some negligence of the business manager, his little account had been overlooked. Even if it isn't more than five dollars, Martin thought to himself, it will buy enough beans and pea soup to enable me to write half a dozen like it, and possibly as good. Back came a cool letter from the editor that at least elicited Martin's admiration. We thank you, it ran, for your excellent contribution. All of us in the office enjoyed it immensely, and, as you see, it was given the place of honor and immediate publication. We earnestly hope that you liked the illustrations. On re-reading your letter it seems to us that you are laboring under the misapprehension that we pay for unsolicited manuscripts. This is not our custom, and of course yours was unsolicited. We assumed, naturally, when we received your story, that you understood the situation. We can only deeply regret this unfortunate misunderstanding, and assure you of our unfailing regard. Again, thanking you for your kind contribution, and hoping to receive more from you in the near future, we remain, etc. There was also a postscript, to the effect that though the billow carried no free list, it took great pleasure in sending him a complimentary subscription for the ensuing year. After that experience, Martin typed at the top of the first sheet of all his manuscripts, submitted at your usual rate. Some day, he consoled himself, they will be submitted at my usual rate. He discovered in himself at this period a passion for perfection, under the sway of which he rewrote and polished the jostling street, the wine of life, joy, the sea lyrics, and others of his earlier work. As of old, nineteen hours of labor a day was too little to suit him. He wrote prodigiously, and he read prodigiously, forgetting in his toil the pangs caused by giving up his tobacco. Ruth's promised cure for the habit, flamboyantly labeled, he stowed away in the most inaccessible corner of his bureau. Especially during his stretches of famine, he suffered from lack of the weed. But, no matter how often he mastered the craving, it remained with him as strong as ever. He regarded it as the biggest thing he had ever achieved. Ruth's point of view was that he was doing no more than was right. She brought him the anti-tobacco remedy, purchased out of her glove money, and in a few days forgot all about it. His machine-made storiettes, 
though he hated them and derided them, were successful. By means of them he redeemed all his pledges, paid most of his bills, and bought a new set of tires for his wheel. The storiettes at least kept the pot a-boiling, and gave him time for ambitious work. While the one thing that upheld him was the forty dollars he had received from the white mouse, he anchored his faith to that, and was confident that the really first-class magazines would pay an unknown writer at least an equal rate, if not a better one. But the thing was, how to get into the first-class magazines. His best stories, essays, and poems went begging among them, and yet, each month, he read reams of dull, prosy, inartistic stuff between all their various covers. If only one editor, he sometimes thought, would descend from his high seat of pride to write me one cheering line. No matter if my work is unusual, no matter if it is unfit, for prudential reasons for their pages, surely there must be some sparks in it somewhere, a few, to warm them to some sort of appreciation. And thereupon he would get out one or another of his manuscripts, such as Adventure, and read it over and over, in a vain attempt to vindicate the editorial silence. As the sweet California spring came on, his period of plenty came to an end. For several weeks he had been worried by a strange silence on the part of the newspaper storyette syndicate. Then, one day, came back to him through the mail ten of his immaculate machine-made storyettes. They were accompanied by a brief letter to the effect that the syndicate was overstocked, and that some months would elapse before it would be in the market again for manuscripts. Martin had even been extravagant on the strength of those ten storyettes. Toward the last the syndicate had been paying him five dollars for each of them, and accepting every one he sent. So he had looked upon the ten as good as sold, and had lived accordingly, on the basis of fifty dollars in the bank. So it was that he entered abruptly upon a lean period, wherein he continued selling his earlier efforts to publications that would not pay, and submitting his later work to magazines that would not buy. Also, he resumed his trips to the pawnbroker down in Oakland. A few jokes and snatches of humorous verse, sold to the New York weeklies, made existence barely possible for him. It was at this time that he wrote letters of inquiry to the several great monthly and quarterly reviews, and learned in reply that they rarely considered unsolicited articles, and that most of their contents were written upon order by well-known specialists who were authorities in their various fields. End of chapter 28